Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The new Ontario government continues upending legislative efforts of its liberal predecessors. Now the Doug Ford government has scrapped or will scrap the Ontario Liberals Green Energy Act. Wherever you live in Canada and to whoever you pay taxes, you're subsidizing the province of Ontario. I spoke with Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General for the province of Ontario, about why this province is in the mess that it's in financially. A Liberal Member of Parliament and CAF veteran crossed the floor from Justin Trudeau's majority government to join the Conservative Party of Canada's ranks in opposition. Why? Andrew Shear joined me on The Roy Green Show today, and we spoke about some of the key issues that are confronting Canadians and about crossing the floor from the Liberals to the Conservatives. The federal government's announcement that a National Energy Board must redo the environmental review for the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension timid. Vivian Krauss, researcher, as far as major monies being poured into Canada by American groups is concerned, spoke to me about that. Listen to Ms. Krause. Yesterday was the three-year anniversary of the abduction of Canadian Robert Hall by ISIS-affiliated terrorists in the Philippines who beheaded him. His family has suffered tremendously. Gord Bibby is the spokesman for the family. He joined me today. The last election campaign, we promised we would repeal the Green Energy Act. We promised we would give families relief from the skyrocketing hydro prices that the Act helped usher in. And we promised we would once again restore the local decision-making that the Green Energy Act stripped from Ontario communities. Today, we're proud once again to say, promise made, promise kept. All right, so there's the Energy Minister for the province of Ontario, Mr. Greg Rigford. Joining me now is Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental advisor and researcher. He's presented expert testimony before many legislative committees and regulatory tribunals in uh, Canada. Tom, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show. Right on, Roy. How are you? I'm doing really well and uh, I'm, I'm feeling better now that I get a sense that, first of all, there's going to be some autonomy returned to communities in the biggest province in in the country that had that autonomy stripped from them by one Dalton McGinty. And, and I want people to be aware that they are, in fact, subsidizing what's going on, been going on in the province of Ontario, and the debt into which the liberal governments, those of McGinty and Wynne, have thrust to the province so, uh, Mr. Ford follows through on the campaign promise the Energy Act will be rescinded, which Dalton McKinney forced through in 2009. Um, can you remind us, Tom, please, what were the most significant fundamentals of that piece of legislation? Well, that's a, that's a real good question. So, at the time the Green Energy Act was passed, um, uh, this is back in 2009, um, uh, it was legislation that became, I think, recognized as Dalton McGinty's signature uh, legislation. Um, uh, and it, it, and it r- fundamentally restructured Ontario's electricity situation. Um, it was a major reorientation. And the, 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 the headlines are kind of at the top of the, of, of the page was that it 
ushered in uh, an explosion of investment in uh, in wind and solar power um, that turned out to be way, way more expensive than the government uh, initially admitted to. Um, uh, but if you looked kind of, if you scratched the surface on the Green Energy Act and you looked at it in a kind of more, uh, kind of more holistic fashion, um, I think my contention is that the real import of that legislation was that it um, uh, transformed Ontario's electricity system in a much more fundamental way than just a few energy contracts. What it ushered in was uh, unprecedented politicization of the decision-making, the governance of the power system. So the, the legislation uh, allowed the minister of the day um, uh, to, to just, uh, you know, uh, on a whim, uh, uh, issue directives to uh, the public agencies, whether the Ontario Energy Board or other uh, public agencies, to make them do just one crazy thing after another. And, and that politicization is, uh, it turned out to be the lasting legacy of the Green Energy Act. Yeah, and that particular type of legislation was fashionable, and st- well, was, still is fashionable with, uh, with some organizations and some governments. But to understand what it was about, there were various efforts which led to this Green Energy Act. And the stated objective was to create 50,000 direct and indirect jobs over a three-year period, the Liberals eventually stated 31,000 jobs had been created, but many of them in construction and of limited duration, according to the Provincial Attorney uh, Auditor General at the time. And there was the additional statement by the then Auditor General, Tom, which you're well aware of, that for each job created in the renewables energy sector, between two and four jobs were lost elsewhere and because of the increase in the price of electricity. Oh, oh, yeah. Those, your recitation is really quite good. Um, uh, that's exactly. The, 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 at the time the Green Energy Act was passed, the, another line uh, um, from, the, from the government of the day uh, was that it would only have the effect of increasing rates at 1% per year. <laughs> um, of course, Right from 2009 on, for for many years following, the um, uh, increase, the pace at which electricity rates were rising for household customers was in the range of seven to eight percent per year, like multiples of the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. So Ontario went from being a relatively modest cost electricity jurisdiction to a pretty expensive place to buy, buy juice. All right, before we take the break, and then we'll come back and talk some more before I speak with someone I know you admire tremendously, and that's Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General for Ontario Now, who was uh, in charge of, um, of uh, Manitoba Hydro, uh, and we'll talk to her about this, all of this. But bef- before we do that, how much trouble, how much financial trouble is the electricity sector in in the province of Ontario? And am I, I'm correct, am I not, when I say that the rest of this country is subsidizing that mess in one way or another? Yeah, I, that, that's right. So uh, Ontario's electricity situation has become a you know huge liability. Um, uh, a, a giant uh, a cost problem, um, uh, both for consumers directly and for 
kind of consumers indirectly as taxpayers because it has a huge impact on the provincial government's uh, deficit as well. And so we got this kind of cocktail of 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 of, of misery and electricity situation that just desperately needs a turnaround. Yeah, are you familiar with any other province that has a similar mess going on because of a decision made by a provincial politician in you know relatively close to the time that the McGuinty decided that that Ontarians needed to have the Green Energy Act? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So so McGuinty's um uh it, it, Initial political success with his green energy initiatives uh, were picked up by multiple provincial governments across the uh, the country, and many many um, uh, jurisdictions set about to to undertake something similar, uh, uh, what McGinty called the green economic and environmental transformation uh, of their power systems, and um, uh, so jurisdictions that and some of them. Several of the jurisdictions that picked up on this just went absolutely crazy uh, and pulled off grossly irresponsible green energy programs. The worst example, the saddest case, really, um, is uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. They, um, uh, starting in 2012, started building on something called Muskrat Falls. Uh, um, uh, there's a, a, an inquiry going in on uh, right now, a, a, as we speak, uh, in in uh, that province, mm-hmm. to try to get to the bottom of how that happened. But it, it, the 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 uh, the social and economic consequences of this uh, power project, one single power project, is so grave uh, that uh, I believe it's going to hasten the depopulation of that that popu- wow. that, that that province. Wow. The Fraser Institute reported that 80% of the electricity generated by wind power took place at times, because this was going to be the big deal, one of the big deals, certainly as far as renewables were concerned, 80% of the electricity generated by wind power took place at times that were out of sync with demand, and so it was sold at a big loss. And in 2013, the Ontario Ontario, uh, Auditor General, I keep wanting to say Attorney General, because maybe they need the Attorney General as well as the Auditor General, uh, estimated the, clo- the loss at close to $2 billion. So this wind power thing didn't work out quite as they advertised it would. You know, what? one of the real shames here uh, of this is, is that these, um, uh, these deficiencies, um, uh, the over-reliance on wind and solar uh, um, uh, and the cost impacts, they, 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 they should have been well understood before we undertook the multi-billion-dollar program. Um, uh, it, it, uh, the, 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 the wind is a very uh, a carefully studied uh, uh, resource, right? This is not uh, new information. The fact that wind doesn't blow uh, very much in the summertime when we have our peak of electricity demand. On the hottest days, it, uh, um, uh, wind speeds are particularly uh, uh, likely to be low. Uh, uh, same thing in the wintertime. It uh, turns out the windiest days in the winter tend to be the warmer days. Um, uh, on, the, on the coldest days, when, again, electricity demand is highest, wind tends to be uh, uh, low. 
similar thing with solar, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 except for about 25, 30 days a year, uh, Ontario's uh, electricity, daily electricity demand peaks just as night is falling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turns out people like to have their lights on. It's just that kind of weird pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Solar panels don't help at all with that. it wasn't. It wasn't well. It wasn't well thought out, Tom. It was just, again, it was an enthusiasm to win, and public relations and some uh, enthusiastic journalists picked up on it and tried to pitch the idea. And I wonder what they're doing with our bylines now. Anyhow, uh, so so what has to in the minute we have left? What has to replace this Green Energy Act? Well, like we got to get a. Uh, we've got to get some of the politics out of the power business. Uh, we've got this highly politicized situation. Uh, uh, we've got too much authority within the, within, at the, you know, the tip of the pen of the energy minister. Um, uh, we, we need some professionalism in this field. Uh, we need a longer-term view and, and, and just kind of shoot from the hip politics um, uh, as a solution for all the problems in our energy business. We've tried it in the past. It doesn't work. I mean, we really have to change the game around governance of the future of Ontario's power. Yeah, we really do. And you have a lot of time for Bonnie Lizick, don't you? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan. She's just been a, just a, a public servant of, of the absolute first class. Tom, thank you for talking to us. Much appreciated. Uh, and, and we'll speak with Ms. Lizick next. We'll get back to you, I'm sure, in the uh, months ahead. And years ahead, potentially, on uh, the electricity file. Good talking to you, Tom. All the best. I look forward to a future chat. Thanks. Tom Adams. The uh, Ontario AG joins us on the Roy Green Show. Ms. Lissick, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for having me. What would you assess the 2018 Ontario deficit to be? The new government announces it at $15 billion, $8 billion more than Premier Witt had projected in her last budget you had it at 11.7 billion projected in April uh, when the, or at least that's what you had it at 11.7 in April, while the wind government projected it at $6.7 billion. Where's the deficit stand, do you think? Or do you know? Um, well, I guess at the time we did the pre-election report, we identified that it was 11.7 billion. Uh, the commission um, is a little bit higher than ours as a result of using updated forecasts on the revenues and uh, and they modified, I think, um, an expense item where they thought, I think, um, the previous government thought they would have some savings. And so at this point in time, those savings hadn't, uh, it's identified those savings hadn't been realized. So the $15 billion is building on the $11.7 billion that we had identified. Okay, so whether it's $6.7 billion uh, or the $11.7 billion or $15 billion, that's a huge difference. You know, six point seven billion versus eleven point seven is huge. Six point seven versus fifteen billion is even more massive. So, what was going on as far as the previous government was concerned with their estimate of a six point seven billion dollar deficit? Where did they get that information? Um, the government, um, the previous government, was not recording two items that we thought were very important to be recorded. So, the the number that we're talking, the fifteen billion dollar estimate, is is the estimate for what the year-end results will be for March 31st, 2019. Uh, those two items, though, that weren't included in the original, the original estimate of the previous government were 
to do with the pension expenses in Ontario and to the accounting for the rate discount that they had given um, uh, people in Ontario. So we identified that pension expenses were understated and that the accounting and the financing design for what was called the Fair Hydro Plan uh, was not appropriate in that uh, the accounting wasn't appropriate and also the way it was being set up would have costed Ontarians over the term of the arrangements about $4 billion more in interest than, than it needed to be, that needed to be paid had they structured it through um, the government like they do in other debt issuances through the Ontario Financing Authority. I want to ask you about the Fair Hydro Plan in, uh, in just a minute, but first, when Premier Wynne insisted the difference between her government's projected deficits and those from your office were due to accounting discrepancies. Could you explain what, how, how did you un- understand that? What did you understand that to be? By the way, my money quite literally is on you, regardless of which party is in power. Well, thank you. We, I mean, we are an independent office of the Legislative Assembly. Our job is to make sure that the, um, you know, the financial results of the government's report are accurate and done, presented to the public in accordance with uh, Canadian public sector accounting standards. So what we had identified is that the government had recorded what they called a pension asset on their statements. And so like anything you own, um, you know, some at some point in time you expect to, you know, um, get a benefit from that. So we asked them for a letter from the unions to say whether or not they would have uh, the ability to unilaterally withdraw from a pe- the teacher's pension fund or be able to unilaterally reduce minimum contributions because there's the potential that they would just give additional benefits and there'd be no benefit to that asset to the province. So they couldn't provide us with that evidence, so we said they needed to write down that asset, take a valuation allowance. Unfortunately, they didn't want to. Uh, so that is that accounted for about $2.5 billion a year um, in additional uh, expense that the government should have been recording as pension expense. So that's one item. Uh, the Fair Hydro Plan, um, the difference there is between the accounting for what they collect from ratepayers and what they have to pay generators, and that difference should be recorded as an expense and they weren't recording it as an expense. The system that they had identified um, was actually um, um, not booking the expense, and uh, they had designed it in such a way that the bottom line would not be adjusted and net debt would not be recorded in the government's financial statements. Now, the uh, the Fair Hydro Plan, I, I thought two of those words, of those three words, may be hyperbole, the words fair and plan, but but that aside, uh, sort of weak attempts at humor aside, that fair hydro plan is not anywhere near what it was supposed to be. Uh, what what have you found in that plan itself, which concerns uh, you above and above and beyond the four billion you just talked about? Right. Well, I think they were proposing an accounting that would not make a policy decision show up in the government's bottom line and it would not reflect in the government's debt numbers, net debt numbers. And so under Canadian public sector accounting standards, the way it was being designed would be inappropriate. Um, so that, that was uh, a significant issue. We, we were not brought into discussions when they were um, you know, planning the accounting. In fact, 
we found about out about it accidentally, and then we started asking questions, and uh, and we were quite surprised at what was being uh, designed. Ms. Lissick, um, moving ahead a little bit, and maybe a little sideways here, what's the total debt being borne by the taxpayer uh, when we're looking at the the hydro file? Looking ahead a decade or two, when you consider the deal signed by the McGuinty and Wynn governments, I've heard the number $133 billion. Is that number uh, still a, f- a fact and factor? And what's the context to that number, if it is? Um, you know, I, I should, but I don't have the numbers right in front of me in terms of the Fair Hydro Plan. But I could say that the, um, the debt that, or the expense for the rate reduction that was provided to uh, consumers and the interest on top of that were going to be several billion dollars. I, I, I just can't remember the amount right now, and I'm sorry. Um, so it was going to be significant. So if they structure the debt differently, there will be, um, um, you know, the ability to save some some money that had been included in the original projection. And um, uh, if they account for it normally, the impact of that decision will show up on the government's bottom line. But, you know, the, the biggest thing um, that as accountants and as people that look at the government statements think of, it's the net debt to GDP ratio. So right now in Ontario... That is about 39 to 40 percent, and it includes um, part of the impact for, you know, the last year of the uh, Fair Hydro Plan. So um, the Fair Hydro Plan will increase the bottom line deficit of the government unless there is an offsetting revenue or expense reduction down the road. Um, I just want to read a couple of lines from a Globe and Mail story and get your thoughts uh, on this. This was from March 25th of this year. Ontario's Office of the Auditor General said it uncovered irregular and improper accounting during a special audit of the independent electricity system operator, a government body that manages key aspects of Ontario's electric power system. Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General, informed the province's Public Accounts Committee last week of problems uncovered during the audit, which began late last year and is now nearly complete. Her concerns included incorrect accounting, deceptive and obstructive behavior by the IESO's board and management, and poor financial controls. If the improper accounting isn't corrected, Ms. Lissick warned she might issue an adverse opinion on Ontario's public accounts, the first such opinion on any government's financial statements in Canadian history. That's a statement. Uh, can Can you walk us through that in layman's terminology? Um, yes, the independent electricity system operator um, prepares their statements in according to uh, according to Canadian public sector accounting standards. So we became aware um, that they had processed last year in their statements a retroactive accounting adjustment, where it brought what we call rate regulated accounting onto their statements and another thing called market accounts onto their statements. We found out about it after it had already been done, and uh, we then said to, met with the board and indicated that, you know, this was inappropriate accounting under Canadian public sector accounting standards. That is really how we then became aware that the Fair Hydro Plan was being planned, because it was necessary for the ISO financial statements to record rate-regulated assets and have the market accounts in their statements so that it would create the 
um, uh, I guess, the perception that rate-regulated accounting would then be okay at the government's consolidated financial statement level, which would then accommodate the accounting where the bottom line does not reflect any impact from the fair hydro plan rate reduction and does not show up, the impact of it does not show up in net debt to equity. So I guess what I'm saying is that we we were concerned the ISO statements were doing some inappropriate accounting under Canadian public sector accounting standards. We tried to, um, you know, involve the board in discussions on this, but because it was part of that big picture that needed to be achieved, uh, they weren't willing to uh, change. Um, we went in and did a special audit, and uh, they would not sign off that they gave us all the information that we needed to complete the audit. So we um, we issued what we call a disclaimer of audit opinion, meaning we couldn't finish the audit fully. And uh, at the government's level, though, uh, we would still have to, as a result of all this, um, re- review the impact of the Fair Hydro Plan. And if it was material and changed a person's read of the government's financial statements, it could have left uh, led to an adverse opinion. So it means that if somebody picks up the government's financial statements and they would show a surplus, if the accounting that was inappropriate would take them into a deficit, that would change the way the reader viewed those statements and viewed the government. And as a result, that would cause us to think that it would likely have been an adverse opinion. But, you know, luckily, we didn't have to go that route. Uh, You know, fortunately, the accounting corrections have been made. And so uh, for the first time in three years, I was able to issue a clean opinion on Ontario's statements for the year ending March 31st, 2018. So now going forward, or for those particular statements, the public now knows those statements are reliable and hopefully going forward, and I do believe going forward, um, you know, uh, uh, it'll be it'll be uh, clean, clean opinions, hopefully. Well, I hope so, too. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for doing what you do for not only the people of the province of Ontario, but for the people of Canada. Thank you, Bonnie Lizzie. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All the best. Leona Oslev uh, crossed from the Liberals, the Justin Trudeau Liberals, to the Andrew Scheer Conservatives, and uh, Ms. Alsalev joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Alsalev, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, are you tired of being answering questions about why you did it? Oh, absolutely not. I think it's uh, an important conversation to have about the country and hope that I'm representing that conversation well. Well, first of all, thank you for your service to Canada. Well, thank you very much. How much of an issue was it for you or is it for you how veterans are being treated in this country? and how they've been treated and continue to be treated, and I think specifically this week about the issue of uh, service dogs for PTSD-suffering veterans, which Mr. Trudeau and Mr. O'Regan can't seem to bring themselves to fund. How much of an issue was the treatment of veterans, or is it to you for your having made the decision you made? Well, the thing about the decision that I made was that it was an actual culmination of a whole bunch of things. Um, I joined the military and swore an oath to serve and defend my country. And then when I was privileged enough to have my name on a ballot and, and citizens entrust me with representing them, every day I'm asking, am I doing all I can? And so uh, veterans issues was certainly one contributing factor, but it was also things like tax reform, employment reform, federal infrastructure, 
our foreign policy and the way that we're addressing defense and security. So it wasn't one thing. It was a culmination of things and a pattern of behavior that I really felt the only way we could get on the right track is by uh, changing political parties and, uh, and, and, and joining a team with strong federal leadership focused on these big things, the things that really matter. When you talk about a pattern of behavior, was the pattern of personal behavior of Mr. Trudeau of concern to you? I think the pattern of all behavior in terms of how you're behaving from an ethics and integrity perspective, as well as how you're behaving from a big policy substantive issue. These are the questions that are facing our nation right now, and the world has changed, and we need to change with it. And so I think the qualities of a a leader, a strong federal leader, are something that we all Canadians should be investigating. I absolutely agree with you on that. Is Canada in increasingly serious trouble or increasingly in trouble because of Mr. Trudeau and his policies? I would say that Canada is facing some challenges. Uh, We are on the, the world is changing around us and there are things that are changing at home. And so certainly our economic situation, which is dependent on our trades, which is combined with our attitude to our allies and our partners and uh, our foreign policy. So all of those things taken together, the federal government has a very significant role in each one of those things and how the federal government behaves and addresses Yeah, but you didn't you didn't show, you didn't cross the floor because things are changing. You got you crossed the floor because you're not happy with the way things are going under the under the government. So what I'm trying to get from you is specifically what is it that, that you told me it's an amalgamation or, or a series of things, but there must have been some some issues that are at the top of the list that really just bothered you enough, troubled you enough, disturbed you enough, made you feel as though what you had signed up for wasn't what you what, what you were receiving. What are the, Give me an example of one or two of those items specifically which caused you to say, I'm out. Well, it is because of two things. One, what I ran on and campaigned on and what the liberals said that they were going to do and what they have then done and how they have changed over time and not focused on those priorities in combination with the things that have changed in the world that Canada is now not, the government is not responding appropriately to those changes. So the big things, the big things that matter, Mm -hmm. tax reform, employment reform, we need Canadians to have confidence that tomorrow will be better than today. No, I get that. that, I get that. I get that. I get that, Ms. Oslev. I'm not trying to be rude to you by by cutting in, but we only have a limited amount of time. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I really don't have time for placebos. I, I want you to tell me, please, what, do you think that the party you just left, the government you just left, has any commitment to the Trans Mountain extension or pipeline extension, or are they just, are they just, are they just deflecting and playing games here? The pipeline is not actually my file, so I couldn't speak to, to specifics. No. What I can say is that they don't have a clear process uh, to clearly communicate to companies that want to invest in, uh, in, in our country, and that's why we're seeing large amounts yeah, of does Mr. Trudeau Does Mr. Trudeau want Trans Mountain Extension built? Again, uh, I know that, uh, that we need to ensure that the process 
is clear and that... No, no I, I understand that, but you were you were a member of the caucus. You attended the caucus meetings. Does Mr. Trudeau want that extension built? Well, that's what he says, and so now we have to see his actions align with those. Yeah, you, you, and I know that, you and I know that's not the proper answer, and it's certainly not the answer I'm looking for, and I, I know that you have a feeling about this. You have a sense about it, and that's what I'm trying to get you to share with us because we have people across this country who are invested... In our, in, in our national economy, we all are, and that's a significant part of our national economy, and Trudeau says it's significant to him, but he's going to get it done in the right time. Nobody knows what that means. It's whatever he wants it to mean. So that's why I'm asking you, is it your sense, is it your feeling that Mr. Trudeau has a commitment to Trans Mountain Extension, or is he just give, paying lip service? I think my actions are clear. I've joined a team with strong federal leadership that is committed to pipelines and infrastructure for this country. And so I am now going to work with them to ensure to the best of our ability that we make sure it happens. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Good luck in the future. And uh, do you have a sense that any of your former colleagues, particularly those with a military background, might be inclined to think about joining you? I would say that if there are anything like the constituents in my riding who have given me an overwhelming response, that they share their frustration with the change in this current leadership and this current government, uh, then I would say that people who voted, there are many people who voted liberal in the last election who are now questioning whether or not that's where they want to be in the Yeah, I hear from them, too. I hear from them as well. Thanks for the time today. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. Leona Alslev. Andrew Scheer is with us, the Conservative Party leader, federally. He's uh, been very good giving us time, Mr. Scheer. Thank you very much. I just spoke with your newest caucus member, and I I was was trying to get her to, to, Ms. Alslev, to tell me her thoughts on whether uh, whether Justin Trudeau has any commitment at all to Trans Mountain Extension, I'll ask you that question. You're, you're opposite him on a daily basis, or most days, and you've talked to him about that. Do you, do you, what's your sense about Justin Trudeau's commitment to Trans Mountain? Uh, I, I don't believe he actually wants to get it built. I think his strategic political goal is to have it just not dead during the next election. So uh, some kind of life support, some kind of process. He just announced that he's given the approvals board another 22 weeks to this time to try to get it right. Uh, so I, I don't know that uh, that he's actually got a plan. I know that he doesn't actually have a plan to get it built. And when you look at what he said when he's talking to his friends in Europe and uh, his environmental wing, he, he, he lets it slip all the time. He says, we're going to phase out Canada's energy sector. We're going uh, we're, 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 we're to get off of of, uh, of yeah, I mean, it's it's so obvious. I, He's, I think this is part of his strategy. Yeah. So, what, what would you now? What would you do? You're in his position. Let's say you're the Prime Minister of Canada. Because look, if if they go ahead and they do what they're supposed to do, or, and 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 they hold the hearings and they do what's what's expected of them, and let's say the court says one, well, then it's fine. Now, there's going to be another objection, which then could be before the Supreme Court of Canada. So that could be another another year or two before anything is done. What would you do as Prime Minister of Canada as far as uh, TMX is concerned now? Well, we were actually calling on the government back in uh, January and February uh, to table legislation that would clearly define federal jurisdiction and also to fast-track reference cases to the Supreme Court in advance. You know, uh, get, get some of these things settled well ahead of time. Don't wait for 
new court cases to come along and then have to work its way through all the, the different systems. So, that, that, you know, that's something that had, had that been done uh, eight or nine months ago, uh, basically as soon as the B.C. NDP formed government, we knew that we were going to have a battle on our hands. And that's when, if the government was serious about championing these types of projects, they would have deployed all their resources in the Department of Justice and the Department of Natural Resources. Mm-hmm. So let's get clarity. Let's get certainty. Let's get these court issues settled. So we're not uh, every six months getting blindsided by, by yeah, that makes that makes sense. That's a good idea. Reference the Supreme Court early, uh, and 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 get on it, and make and make sure that as a government, you get done what you want to get done. Bill Bill C sixty nine, it's been described as the death knell, um, or the nail in the coffin for not only the oil patch but also for a good part of Canada's energy sector. Uh, economy. What do you say? Uh, it, it, that's absolutely right. It is being referred to as the, the ban on pipeline bill. Uh, one one quick example as to how it is going to make the approval process so cumbersome that new pipelines won't be able to be uh, built. Under the old uh, regime, in order to be able to, to make a presentation at the approvals process, you had to prove some kind of a connection to the project. You had to show that you're an expert in, in a certain field, whether it was environment or in engineering, uh, or you had to show that you're somehow connected so uh, uh, to, to the project or impacted. So uh, a First Nations community, a municipality, a homeowner, right. a landowner. Right. Uh, this new legislation allows literally anyone in Canada uh, to file uh, a submission and, and be heard. So uh, this, it's going to gum the system up and kill these types of projects through attrition. That's just one example. What does it mean to you to have Leona Oslev join your caucus? And, and 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 please don't give me the read me the press release. Tell tell me what it means to you. <laughs> well, obviously it's, it's it's a great deal of momentum. It's uh it's it's great for our caucus. Uh, it, it shows. I, I believe that she is the embodiment of a sentiment that a lot of people have had uh, across the country since 2015. That uh, people voted liberal. People who uh, got caught up in the hype in 2015. And then are taking a look at what the prime minister is doing on the world stage, what he's doing here at home, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and having not just second thoughts, but but looking to our party now. So her coming over has sent that signal to all those voters who feel disillusioned and frustrated uh, that there is another option, and that the Conservative Party is providing that kind of a principal leadership. Okay, you're, as they say, your door is always open. Now uh, we have one minute left. I've been speaking with Calvin Helene about the Eagle Spirit Pipeline and the Eagle Spirit Energy Project that is run by 35 First Nations. 34 of them, maybe all 35 of them, have signed off on getting this pipeline built. It will be a tremendous boost to the national economy, and you have First Nations already saying, this is our territory, we want it built. What would you do? We have 30 seconds. Would you? Are you prepared to say that you'd support it? I, I believe that, that wherever you have uh, uh, science, uh, show that, that pipelines are safe and you've got uh, economic benefits that would benefit people that that you should be uh, you know generally in favor of these types of things no, but and, would you would you would you su- would you support that pipeline if all those factors if everything's in place does Andrew Shearer, as Prime Minister of Canada say put the shovels in the ground I, I I say any project that has met those criteria yes we should be uh, looking for these types of opportunities to provide economic opportunity for First Nations people uh, get them uh, the jobs that, that they sorely okay. need that's where you lift people out of poverty all right mr. Sher good talking to you uh, thank you very much and thanks for making your newest caucus member available to us always a pleasure thank have you. a good day uh, Vivian Kraus you can follow Vivian on Twitter at fair questions. 
Vivian Krauss is the incredible Canadian who was shouting at us, all of us, for a long time about what was happening as far as American money flowing into Canada is concerned to halt our um, energy sector development and uh, to help our Canadian economy. And it all began in 2009, I believe, with a meeting in New York. And then eventually, uh, you know, the, the, we started to hear Vivian and we've learned so much from her. And I described Vivian in one of our most recent conversations as a journalist, great journalist, and she said, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> You're a better journalist than many people who carry the, the business card. How are you, Vivian? Good, good. Great to be on your show again. Thanks well, it's for good. having me back. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. What do you make of the most recent announcement by the federal government of Canada about the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension? How satisfied are you with what came out of Ottawa? Well, we'd have to go back to the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal. And that's what I found disappointing. Um, not so much the decision, but um, the description around the, the, the language that, that was used to describe the applicants. And I think that's where the problem starts. You know, um, the applicants, of course, were the, uh, the group of applicants was led off by the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation, followed by the city of Vancouver, uh, the city of Burnaby, um, uh, a lot of other coastal First Nations in the lower mainland area and actually in the interior of British Columbia as well, and then two environmental groups, um, Raincoast Conservation and uh, an organization called Living Oceans. The, the latter, the, the last two, the environmental groups, they were identified by the judges simply as not-for-profit organizations. Now, if that were true and that, that was all there was to it, well, that would be fine, and I wouldn't have any problem with the, the, the court's uh, ruling. But there's more to it than that, and that's the part that we need to talk about, right? And that's the fact that the Tsleil-Waututh, and um, to some extent I'm not sure about the other First Nations in the group, but for sure the Tsleil-Waututh and the two environmental groups are all part of an an effort called the Tar Sands Campaign. Okay, that's not my not my choice of words in using the words Tar Sands. There is an actual campaign called the Tar Sands Campaign, which I've been writing about now for eight years. And that's because the strategy actually goes back ten years, goes back to October of two thousand eight. And for the first seven years we really didn't know exactly what the purpose of it was. But last year the individual who has been running the show for 10 years came out and said very clearly that the goal of the campaign, and bear in mind, this is a campaign into which tens of millions of dollars have gone, okay? More from, the, from, the, from the United States, right? American yeah. dollars, okay. Yeah. More than, more than 400 checks and wire payments at least. That's not including 2017 or 2018. And he came out and said that, in fact, that, you know, the goal, he said, the campaign strategy from the very beginning, those are his words, the campaign strategy from the very beginning was to, and I quote, landlock the tar sands so that the oil cannot reach international markets where it could fetch a higher price per barrel. And he was explicit in using those words, international markets, and, and clear about the fact that what the goal of the campaign was, was to keep Canada out of the oil market. Okay, 
and and uh, there's an admission there of uh, what you might call economic harm, right? We we all know it's costing Canada billions of dollars. The fact that we're forced to sell it into only one market where we were price takers, right? Now th- my concern with the ruling is that there's no mention of the fact that some of the First Nations and both environmental groups have been paid in in total more than a million dollars as part of this campaign. They were not identified. And we and there's and there's evidence about all of this. Oh yes, this is there's no doubt about this. Not to mention one of the two um, uh, environmental groups, Living Ocean Society, isn't even a Canadian charity. It's a nonprofit in Canada, but it is a charity under U.S. law, not under not even under Canadian law. They initially began the process of becoming a Canadian charity, but they are on the record as having discontinued the process because they themselves recognized that they were too political. So, Vivian, regardless of what happens, regardless of what steps may or may not be taken, regardless of what pipeline project finds itself before a court, when it really should be the government's decision, um, but regardless of what happens... There, the money will continue to flow from the United States in an undisguised, almost undisguised effort to, to stop the uh, Canadian oil to get, from getting to port and getting to international markets. That's, and nothing's going to change, right? I mean, is that what you, is that no, what, from all of your research, is that, is that what it points to? Yes, and by the way, it's not just oil, it's gas. It's also gas. If you read the documents, it's also gas right, okay. from British Columbia. Yeah. So, so here, you know, I feel that it's a fool's errand to continue these pipeline projects and the development of the energy sector until this campaign is brought to an end. And, you know, I would have to ask, too, how can the Crown, how can the courts, rather, expect the Crown, expect the government to conduct meaningful consultation with First Nations, um, something I believe in, but how can they do that at the same time that those very same First Nations are heavily funded to stop the projects that are supposed to be discussed. Now, what's interesting here is that, and and I, I spoke with uh, John Helene, Calvin Helene's brother, last weekend, and uh, he's uh, the mayor of First Nation in uh, in British Columbia, and he was in Ottawa on Thursday, speaking to independent senators about Bill C sixty nine and also Bill C forty eight, and and Calvin, his brother, of course, is the chairman of the Eagle Spirit Energy Project, which is that massive pipeline that they would build on First Nations territory, and they're ready to to get going with this, and they have the support, as I said earlier, of 34 of the 35 First Nations, and maybe all 35, and and, and I don't hear anything in the way of enthusiasm coming from Ottawa. We did hear Andrew Shear just say a couple of minutes ago that he, you know, if, if all the parameters are met, then he would be supportive of pipeline projects. Well, I'd say if 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 consultation with First Nations is critical to the building of a pipeline, then Eagle Spirit Energy has that resolved. So, um, and I forgot my original question, but that's a, that's a, that's a pipeline that may have more of a future than even Trans Mountain Extension if the government is going to wait for the right way to do it, because if the court eventually agrees that NEB has done the proper consultation and says, okay, you can go ahead now, you know there's going to be an an appeal filed and maybe straight to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is going to mean another delay. Yeah. 
Well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, I've, I've met Calvin, and I, and I greatly admire the initiative and the leadership that he's shown to really step into this, uh, wade into this, and try and find a, um, a solution that would be acceptable to people on the coast who are, are worried about, um, you know, to live bitumen on boats. And there's a lot of reasonable people uh, in British Columbia um, who are concerned about that. Of course. You know, um, so they're, they're, so he's he's got um, some some very interesting ideas. I just um, wish we could get people talking um, uh, more about some of these more innovative yeah. approaches. Yeah, absolutely. But 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 back to the problem is conflict of interest. How yeah. do um, First Nations simultaneously yeah. get millions of dollars from uh, outside interests? I have about a minute. How do you see this in the short term? How do you see this issue concerning TMX going forward? I don't. There, it's a, it, there's a, there's a, a, a group of very well-funded um, um, organizations, and they are funded just to stop it by mm-hmm. any way means possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the ORCA is, is another thing. If you actually read the documents, you find out that these environmental groups are doing n- nothing to save the ORCA except trying to stop the oil tankers. If they're really concerned about the ORCA, They'd be talking to BC ferries, right? There's thousands of ferries that go by. The acoustic disturbance from them is far greater than, you know, a couple more oil tankers per week. There's a whole series of things that they could be doing that that they aren't. So it's very clear they're they're not they haven't got a comprehensive plan for yeah, that. They're yeah, just they, using this as a pretext. You have okay? you, you so have what's ed- gonna happen. You have educated I, us all on on what's been happening and what's going on. And Vivian, we'll get you back on the air. Really soon, I know. I mean, I'm always happy to talk to you. Great. And, you know, well, uh, and there's a lot like to talk Texans. about. we got to think like Texans, okay? What would Texas do if a group of charitable Canadian foundations were running a multi-million dollar campaign to landlock Texan crude? What would they do? That's how we got to start thinking. All right, I like that. I like that. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Vivian. Me on. Take care. Vivian Krauss at Fair Questions on uh, Twitter, at Fair Questions on Twitter, and she's written a great deal of... Uh, Material and read many columns in the Financial Post. Three years ago yesterday, Robert Hall was abducted by terrorists in the Philippines who were associated with, with ISIS. And we know the story. Many Canadians, most Canadians know what happened uh, to Mr. Hall and Mr. John Ridsdale, two Canadians. He was, Mr. Ridsdale, also kidnapped by that same group. And the government of Canada did essentially nothing to help these Canadians or support the families. And we've, uh, we spoke for quite some time with, uh, with Mr. Hall's family, specifically with, uh, with uh, his sister Bonice and uh, with his cousin Gord Bibby. Bonice, we, we, we spoke about his sister having passed away not long ago, and uh, Gord is back with his cousin and uh, spokesperson for the family. Gord, thank you very much for for taking the time. I know that there are people across this country who have not forgotten, who feel very strongly about your family. I've seen it on Twitter. How are you feeling today? How's the family feeling today? Well, thanks, Roy. And and I'd like to uh, thank uh, yourself, certainly, for keeping this issue alive and also for your listeners across the country. It's it's, uh, really a great amount of support to the family. Um, We're we're all down. Um, It's it's interesting. There's actually two markers that the family... family has to deal with. Of course, there's the initial abduction, uh, which took place, as you mentioned yesterday, 
uh, uh, three years ago yesterday. And then, of course, there's the actual uh, murder of uh, Robert. Uh, John uh, Ridstow was uh, beheaded uh, a few weeks before John, uh, before Robert was. but uh, So, yeah, everybody's having a tough go of it. And, uh, again, I'd like to thank you so much for for keeping this story alive. Well, we, we all in Canada, we have a, a personal connection to all of our fellow citizens, and we also feel that our, our governments should be, when they're engaged, when our citizens are in trouble overseas, then our governments should be in, engaged and involved and trying to resolve the issue and get the home. Other individuals who were kidnapped by that group in the Philippines were released because ransoms were paid. Uh, we know that this wasn't going to be the case uh, with, with the federal government of Canada. What, what needs to be most remembered, uh, Gord, about, about, about what took place in government involvement? And, and what would your family say has to be learned from this tragic experience? Well, gosh, it's uh, where to start. There's um, certainly a uh, uh, communication. Uh, there was virtually no communication with the family. Uh, the family was told not to talk about it online, uh, not to uh, make posts on Facebook. And uh, there was very little information, if any, coming back from from uh, the, the uh, people in charge about what was going on, how negotiations were going. So certainly communication, as you, as you know, Roy, the family was instrumental in getting a petition before Parliament called uh, uh, E-Petition 696, which... Uh, was which eventually became what's called the Renova Protocol, and and it laid out a number of areas that that we felt the government should uh, should take so that uh, future situations like this could be addressed uh, and addressed rather quickly. Uh, unfortunately, uh, nothing, uh, very little, if anything, has happened in that regard. Um, the petition was brought before Parliament and uh, basically put on the shelf, and very little has been done with that since. So, it's sad, isn't it? When, when, when something that's as—I mean, you thought this through. The Renova, Renova was also the the name of uh, of your cousin's boat. Of uh, Bob's boat, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and and it was very carefully thought through. It was very sensible um, action plan for s- future governments. And and nothing is done with it. And that I, to me, that speaks of almost shame on their part for not having done what they needed to do or should have done in your cousin's case and Mr. Ridsdale's case. Well, exactly. And and I think you also know as well as your listeners. And I think you actually uh, interviewed Bonnie's prior to her passing about uh, the meetings that her and her family had with uh, in Ottawa. It was about a week. It was last November. Yes. And uh, they actually met with uh, Christopher Freeland. They met with uh, many ministers as well as uh, one-on-one with the prime minister himself. Which, which happened it, really because Bernice forced it to happen, oh, right? Oh, you better believe it. Uh, she she was tenacious. She was just a pit bull, and she was just after everybody. And uh, I've been very honored to be appointed by the family to be her representative and I, I think I, I pale in comparison to Bonnie because she was just just amazing. But you're right. It was due to her efforts that uh, these meetings came uh, into being. There were commitments made by uh, various government departments. Uh, again, some has been realized, but uh, most have not. Yeah. And and I've been involved since then with, uh, with discussions with the government. And I get the sense, Roy, that... 
the people at the lower levels that basically have to do all the administration of this are very, very frustrated yeah. because we keep asking them questions, you know, how come this, how well we can't tell you because it's uh, for security reasons. Now it has to happen. It has to happen at the top, Bobby. Oh. Uh, Gord, it really has to happen at the top. I, I'm, I hate to say this, but you know how it is uh, with, with, with clocks and media. You know that as well as I do. So I, I thank you for joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. This country's thinking about Robert and about uh, Mr. Ridsdale and about your family. You're always on our minds, and, and things have to change. They must change. All the best to you and everybody in the family, Gord. Thanks again, Ray, and uh, uh, Roy, on the same to you. Take care. Gord Mabee. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.